Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the collaboration conundrum as agencies build their budgets for 2024. And the Commerce Department's risk equation isn't what you think it is. It's Wednesday, August 31st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. A programming note, the Daily Scoop podcast will bring you a new show again tomorrow, then a pause for Labor Day until Monday. We'll be back with a brand new show again next Tuesday, September 6th. The Office of the National Cyber Director will help the Office of Management and Budget review fiscal year 2024 budget submissions from agencies for cyber. The director of OMB, Shalanda Young, and the National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, write their organizations will review agency cyber budgets to, quote, identify potential gaps and potential solutions to those gaps. Irv Dennis is former chief financial officer at HUD. He's author of the book, Transforming a Federal Agency Management Lessons from HUD's Financial Reconstruction. Irv, Welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I call your attention to OMB memo M22-16. The Office of the National Cyber Director will jointly review agency responses to administration cyber priorities with, as I mentioned, feedback to agencies on whether the priorities are adequately addressed and consistent with the overall cyber strategy and policy. I don't remember a time when some other organization outside of OMB was going to review budgets with OMB as the agencies submit them. Did I miss something or is this a standout in your mind? Welcome, Irv. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, I do think this is a bit of a standout in my experience. Um, However, I really do applaud the effort. I, I really like this memorandum. I like what they're trying to accomplish. And I think what's really important here, in my personal experience, they'll set out these initiatives, but then to get the resources, the funding is very, very difficult, not only within Congress and the appropriators, but even within OMB itself. And um, I think the the outside look at this is very, very important, and I applaud that effort. And I think what's going to have to happen um, simultaneously, if you want this in the 24 budget in a meaningful way, is to start talking to the appropriators now about it and the importance of it. Um, I, 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 you know, I read this memorandum. I think it's again. I applaud the effort. I think it's extraordinarily important. Um, I, I do think you'll see agencies, different agencies, be at different stages of this. Some of this has been addressed in certain fashions, and 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 there'll be a, there'll be a you know hybrid of of uh, where they go with this. So. I think it's going to be really important for agencies to coordinate this with their own efforts so they're not doubling up. And if if I were Congress and OMB, I'd be very, very focused on that. One of the things that I think is the benefit of this, Irv, and, and I would appreciate your insight as an expert on this, is it's really clear what the expectations are for the agencies. They list cyber investment priorities, and there's only three, and they're simple. Improving yep. the defense and resilience of government networks, deepening cross-sector collaboration in defense of critical infrastructure, strengthening the foundations of our digitally enabled mm-hmm. future. They're not new. It, right. It's a restatement of what the administration's cyber priorities are. It's just, it was striking to me that they're tying it, as you just said, to where the dollars should go. And they're also tying it to where the expertises. I mean, they talk about outside resources. They talk about the human capital side of this and, you know, and start developing 
the workforce of the future through this. And you know, I suspect a lot of the expertise um, is probably more on the outside in the private sector than it is in the government. And I think one of the things the executive branch specifically ought to be thinking about is how to get some of that private sector experience into the executive branch at the career and the political level so they can help drive this. Uh, this is, this is uh, complicated stuff. It's relatively new. The private sector's got a better handle on it because they're further ahead. Get that expertise somehow inside the government. The contracting is the easy answer, but you really need employees that are really experienced in this to drive it as well. Um, and, and I think when, when I read this memo, um, again, I was really excited about it, but I think it's going to be really important for each agency to benchmark where they are now compared to, as you say, these standards that are laid out, easy to understand, develop that gap, and then build your resource needs around that gap. And that's, I think it was going to be really important to make this successful. All right. I'm going to put you back at HUD then for a minute in your old chair. You see this memo. What do you do next? And who do you talk to next in order to execute on this, knowing that not just OMB, but also Chris Inglis is going to be grading your work? Yes. I would be sitting down with our CIO immediately and saying, I know we've had this in our strategy in the past. Where exactly are we with this? Uh, come up with a very clear inventory of exactly how the current state of each of these initiatives and what is it going to take to get to uh, full compliance and then start measuring out those uh, the, the timeline that it's going to take, the resources it's going to take, the expertise it's going to take, and then cost that out. And then start that conversation very early on with um, OMB, your, your appropriators at OMB are maybe a little bit different than where this directive's coming from. And I dealt with that at HUD. This here's a directive, here's the resources it's going to take and try to get money from OMB in the budgetary process. Most importantly is the appropriators. They have to buy into this. They have to have a clear understanding of how the money is being spent and how it's going to be spent wisely. Because um, in my experience at HUD, uh, once we laid out a game plan, uh, for remediation, uh, the appropriators paused and, and uh, you know, they think anytime you're putting money into infrastructure, you're taking money, uh, get, uh, taking money away from what's, uh, what's uh, the purpose of the, or the mission of the agency. And, you know, not, this is no disrespect to Congress. There's just not a lot of business minds in Congress. So they can't immediately see the payback or the importance of some of this stuff. Um, so I think it's going to be really important to start the dialogue early with, with the appropriators, even before the 24 process starts. All right. For the dialogue with the, the agency CIO, what yes. do you need the CIO to bring to that conversation? Not just the first meeting, but on an ongoing basis as you're doing this formulation. And what should the CIO expect from you as the CFO and your team to yeah. help him or her uh, do the work that they need to do? Well, with it, what I would do as a CIO is have at least monthly meetings on this exact topic. Again, start with the inventory of where we are, uh, do a gap assessment of where we need to be, and the uh, and then progress a monitoring process to measure progress uh, each month. What the CIO ought to expect of the CFO is to put this in as a priority into the budget, make it loud, uh, make it clear, and have a dialogue with OMB and and a joint dialogue for the CIO and the CFO going together to OMB, going together to, to the appropriators, 
I'm laying out this vision now so everyone can see exactly what you're trying to accomplish. I think that's uh, have an ongoing dialogue with, you know, we're saying the CIO and the CFO, but this may involve departments within the agency as well, because some, some departments will have some responsibility for this as well. So it's got to be an agency-wide effort not just siloed within the different uh, within the different uh, groups. Well, and this strikes me, too, as another example of what you and I have talked about before and we talk about on this program a lot, which is this probably won't be limited to the CIO and the CFO. This is going to also include acquisition, and it's also going to include yep. human capital, as we always yep. discuss, right? Exactly. And it's also going to include the programs themselves and working with the uh, working with the grantees. You know, information flows back and forth. This is not just within the four walls of these agencies. Uh, a lot of information is shared with the grantees. And, you know, as I read through this, that's maybe the one area I might have might have expanded a little bit is make sure as information flows out of the agency into the grantees that there's security, cybersecurity around that as well. One more thing that they pointed to here, um, both Shalanda Young and Chris Inglis, the authors of this memo, the president's management agenda is a roadmap for federal agencies to deliver results for all the American people. Uh, PMA calls for building excellent, equitable, and secure federal services and customer experiences and so on and so on. It, it, again, it's pointing back to work they've already done. It's building yeah. on work that they've already done and already said months right. ago. This is what our our roadmap is going to be. Mm. They're continuing on this journey rather than moving from something else to something else. Exactly. I actually I actually like this because a lot of similarities here from what we saw in the prior administration, at least from an overall objective. So, uh, you, you know, I you watch the news today and it's all this you know, the, the bickering that goes on back and forth in Washington. I actually think this infrastructure stuff feels like it's a continuation of of uh, some of the stuff we saw in the past. And I really do applaud that effort as well. All right. How do you know at some point in the future, maybe when the budget request comes out, mm -hmm. so fiscal 24 would come out next February, March is when it's supposed right. to come out. How right. do you look at that document and know as the CFO, you did what you were supposed to do not just in accordance to comply with this memo, but to get to get to where you want to be to map the future of the agency. Well, I think it's uh, just taking a look at the the budget itself and make sure the dollars are allocated. Um, the uh, and what the, the president's budget that'll be a little bit easier to have because that is driven by by OMB. And as long as OMB is very comfortable with what the agencies are doing, the dollars will be there. What's really critical is to to stand tall and be a very aggressive with that with the appropriators because they're the ones that ultimately are going to allow the funds and you know the appropriators will put their the, the, the rules around it right i mean once you get the funds appropriated then you got to submit a uh, an expenditure plan and that gets you know if it's it's unfortunate that slows everything down and when i read this memo the only thing i would like to have seen on this is 24 b 23 <laughs> because you know, 24 ends up becoming 25 and then 26 before it gets allocated, get all the, the contractors on board. If there is a way to expedite contracting, expedite hiring in the private sector, all of this would be say, let's get started now type thing. So we're really two years out before any of this really starts to, uh, to be impacted. There's an old saying in this town, and I know you know it, Irv, when they tell you it's not about the money, it's about the money. It's, about the <laughs> it's exactly. great, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, same here. Thank you.
You can find a link to that OMB memo in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ann Newberger, and the Director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, are two of the headliners for Defense Talks. It's coming September 15th at the Ritz-Carlton in Pentagon City. You can see the rest of the lineup and register for the event through the link in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Census Bureau is already preparing for the 2030 Census. It'll use the digital transformation lessons it learned from the 2020 Census to make its job easier in eight years. At FedScoop's Fed Talks last Wednesday, the Commerce Department's Chief Information Officer Andre Mendez tells James Hansen of Adobe the innovation that led to the Census Bureau's success came from leadership, not just from the tech office. I think that that innovation that was brought to the table by Census was actually driven by their leadership, both their, uh, their uh, uh, process leadership and their technology leadership. Because they looked at the art of the possible with the existing environment, uh, and they decided that they were going to leverage it. And, uh, and sometimes it is so much easier uh, to just rely on the status quo on what you know, right? Because it reduces your risk, right? And so to me, you know, this, this is really at the crux of innovation, right? Innovation is about uh, managing, you know, change uh, and the leadership associated with that. And so what they displayed was exactly that, the ability to embrace a new set of processes, procedures, uh, and technologies that would enable them to deliver uh, the service in a much better way. It is, it is really amazing that, uh, that they were able to deliver the way that they delivered, but also what would have happened if had they not gone down that innovation pathway uh, and relied on, on old tried and true processes, right, uh, when COVID hit, right? Because the reality is that over 60% of the folks out there that were counted, uh, they were counted via their own participation in an online environment that was almost entirely uh, cloud-based, right? And so there you go. Uh, in, in, from the get-go, 70% of your process was completed in a way that allowed them to be insulated from the effects of COVID. You know, prescience, uh, I don't think so, right? But it, it worked out quite well. And, and that, to me, is, is one of the most important things about innovation. People tend to characterize innovation in, in a variety of ways that deal with the latest technologies, with latest technology introductions. But to me, quite honestly, and the environment that we all live in, you know, the majority of you are, are in the Fed space, right? Innovation is about the courage of leadership, the courage of introducing something that actually might put you at risk, right? Because you're disrupting the status quo. And, and to me, that's the real meaning of innovation, is the ability to come in and drive a consensus, into a, you know, the next level of functionality, right? Uh, people talk a lot about reaching consensus. Uh, to me, one of the most dangerous concepts that you could ever embark or embrace into because invariably, in environments where you are embracing consensus, eight out of the 10 people at the table are perfectly happy with the status quo because it represents the least amount of risk to their career, right? And so when you reach consensus in that type of environment, Immediately, you know, almost by default, you are tainted by status quo thinking, right? And implementing something that is far less than what it could be if you were to drive consensus. 
right? Now, that might be a little controversial, but that's okay. I mean, Jeff just mentioned that 90% of the people were wrong about the way they thought about something, <laughs> and I thought that was so good, I had to clap, right? <clears throat> uh, right? And so, when we, when we talk about that, that ability and the courage to do the leadership, to change the status quo, to drive innovation, to drive consensus, you have to have a really good idea about the end game of any situation that you're operating in, right? And to me, you know, so that means that not only do you have to be courageous, you also have to be informed because there's very few things more dangerous, uh, or more dangerous than somebody with a lot of courage and not a lot of knowledge, right? <clears throat> You're called teenagers, basically, is what it comes down to, <clears throat> right? And so you, you have to have that, that vision about uh, where things are going and that study about how, where things are going and then have the courage to do a job, not keep a job, right? <laughs> And that takes us to the other point that, to me, is, is absolutely essential, and that is resilience, right? And people tend to think of resilience in IT uh, in terms of, you know, redundancy, capability to withstand, uh, you know, certain things going down and you continue to, to operate, uh, you know, weather events, uh, backhoes cutting your, your, your fiber lines, whatever. To me, the most important resilience that you can have is actually the resilience that is inherent in leadership when you find a map of processes like the one that the previous speaker just you know, uh, announced, right? And, and you're trying to change that into a new process, right? And everybody will come out of the woodwork and tell you, no, 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 you can't do that because of this. Or you can't do that because of that. And invariably, the this and that are things that happened once in the last 10 years and therefore should deter you from moving forward with your new application development, right? And that is just absolutely insanity, right? But yet we do it all the time. Why? Because we go into consensus, right? And we do not drive consensus, and we do not drive innovation and, and change. And so that resiliency to withstand sometimes those withering attacks, you know, from people who are deeply married to the status quo, right, is one of the most important things associated with innovation and resilience, right? And so, uh, you know, to me, that, 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 that's extremely important. Uh, l let me give you an example. Uh, at PBS back in 2002, we had 30-year-old workflows that were entirely based on, on, on tapes, right? You got a tape produced at WGBH in Boston. It was sent, you know, in an airplane uh, urgently to get to our center. It was quality controlled. It was put on, you know, all kinds of things. And it was put on a tape machine, and at 8 p.m., somebody religiously would go pop, right? And all of a sudden, all the screens across the country lit up with Ken Burns baseball, right? And, and the process worked. But when you looked at everything behind the process, it was unimaginable complexity, unimaginable opportunity for mistakes, unimaginable, uh, you know, redundancy that had to be built in in order to avoid the problem, right? And the concept that you could have an end-to-end -end digital workflow with, uh, with uh, the, a tape never be created, and automation driving these entire processes was so anathema to the entire realm of the PBS stations that they fought for three years to keep the status quo even as we were moving forward with an end-to-end -end digital processing for the entire thing. And so that resiliency is unbelievably important in terms of the ability to withstand that status quo and, and do it so in a thoughtful manner, right? Uh, and, uh, and make sure that you continue to move forward. Well, let's talk about that in a more kind of recent example. The Patent and Trademark Office mm -hmm. has started to digitize forms, forms modernization, 
leveraging electronic signatures. In 2020 alone, uh, I think that they processed, the data says 600,000 patent files and 400,000 trademark registrations. How, how do you take that same approach of innovation, moving beyond the status quo, managing that risk, uh, to apply that to other areas in terms of digitizing processes and automating workflows when there's so much paperwork uh, and manual processes built in across not just the Department of Commerce, but the entire government? Well, you know, it's uh, one, you leverage the expertise that you created at USPTO under tremendous leadership with Jamie Holcomb, who has really driven an enormous amount of those processes, and you prove that it is possible to do so. But then, you know, you also leverage, to the degree possible, a crisis, right? So two years ago, two and a half years ago, all of a sudden, nobody could go into the offices. All of a sudden, all of the obstacles to using digital signatures across the entire realm disappeared. Because people could no longer say, no, 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 in this particular case, you can't do it. In that particular case, you can't do it. No, you have to do it for everything. So the lawyers got to work, the process people got to work and said, how are we going to do this? Right? And necessity was indeed the mother of that creation. Because within two weeks, every signature was digital, right? How long would that process have been taken, would have taken if we had made a conscious decision to say, we're going to go to all digital signatures uh, you know, within the next, you know, we will we'll put that in the budget for the next fiscal year, right? Yeah, yeah. And then what happens? Well, the budget for the next fiscal year is going to take negotiation. It might or may not make it into, but if it does, then you might have a CR, you might have a full year CR, and two years later, three years later, four years later, you start your process. A crisis ensues, and what happens? How are we going to do this? Bang, 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 bang. Driving consensus, and you say, boom, this is how we're going to do it, and we're going to do it now. Two weeks later, every signature is digital, right? This is the same thing with every single organization that we have, right? You have to drive that consensus. You have to be incredibly aggressive and, again, resilient in terms of going against the resistance and moving things forward as fast as possible. Because in the federal sector, there are agencies that are doing exceptional work in terms of leveraging the latest and greatest, and agencies that are still lagging behind. Despite the fact that they spent billions of dollars in innovation processes that have repeatedly failed, and they find themselves still running COBOL on mainframes for some of their processes, right? Why is that? Why is that? Why can it work in certain cases and not work in certain other cases? And I would venture to tell you that it is because leadership needs to be brought to the table, both at the agency head level and then at the technology level. They're saying, we're gonna get this done come heck or high water, and I don't care if you fire me in the process. So we're, it looks like we're out of time, but we're on the goal line, so I'm going to try and get one question, one play uh, in. Is, as you're thinking through delivering customer experience, delivering it in a digital way, connecting those experiences also offline, where is the Department of Commerce in its own maturity around digital customer experience in terms of simple, seamless, secure, mm. and what advice might you have for other agency leaders like yourself to continue to advance that, driving that innovation, getting out of the status quo? Well, you know, it, it varies widely. Within commerce, there are agencies that are actually quite advanced in that realm, uh, and in, within certain processes within their own particular realm, and agencies that, that are, and bureaus that are a little far behind. 
Uh, and so, you know, the art of the possible is absolutely evident, right? You look at the private sector, you look at the way that we conduct business today, and the thought processes associated with doing business the old-fashioned way, like it is still being done in a lot of government agencies, is just absolutely anathema to modern living, right? And the people will not stand for it. And then they stop using your services, therefore preventing you from fulfilling your charter. And so it's absolutely imperative that we continue to drive that modernization, taking advantage of not only the technology that exists in the private sector, but also their examples. You know, somebody up here, you know, talked about, you know, the cell phones and the functionality that exists. Look at every single application. What are the ones that you choose? The ones that you choose are the ones that give you immediate access to what you want to do in the simplest manner, right, in an integrated and hopefully safe manner, and boom, you're there, right? The adoption goes, boom, skyrockets, asymptotic, right? And then there are the other ones that don't work quite as well. And what happens? You stop doing it. You stop dealing with it. I will tell you one particular one, and I'm not endorsing anybody, right? But for me, you know, five years ago, Home Depot was an absolute disaster on an app. Absolute disaster on an app. Today, Home Depot is a very, very usable app, right? And the same is true for a lot of other, uh, you know, uh, apps out there that have made that quintessential leap, leap into the next realm, right? I think that we have an opportunity in the government to learn those lessons, right, uh, and to leapfrog. You know, there's no point in having a, a system that goes from being COBOL mainframe driven and paper driven into the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, okay? If we're that far behind, let's leapfrog. Let's, let's be bold with a vision that says, I don't want to evolve in this particular case, and I'm a big fan of evolution, I'll tell you that. But in, the, in there particular cases where you have the examples there to actually do a saltation from where 40 years was to where 10 years from now is, and then drive it to that, to that realm. Because if you're going to be incremental, if you're going to be consensus reaching and go pop, 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 not only are you only going to make incremental process, but because technology and the society is moving so fast, you actually will be moving backwards as you're moving forwards because the end zone, it continues to move away. Andre Mendez, the CIO of the Commerce Department at Fed Talks last Wednesday with James Hansen of Adobe. You can find a link to all the Fed Talks sessions in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you don't want to miss a show, you can subscribe and get the show every weekday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows, and on any device you get your shows. If you really like the Daily Scoop Podcast, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It'll help more people find the show. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney and Carlin Fisher help me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The Daily Scoop Podcast is back tomorrow. Till then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.